0: Don't worry, that's not a baby crying in here, that's the, that's the title package. I always panic. Nobody crying in here yet. We'll see what I have to say. Uh, but as we think about babies, uh, one of the things I've been thinking about this week is uh, that we we put a lot of pressure on babies, uh, just in general. And, and maybe that doesn't seem obvious to you at first glance. I mean, really, babies don't have a lot to do, right? Except, you know, cry, eat, and poop. Uh, you know, there's not much else we, we ask of them. And yet, uh, I think that there really are things that we ask of babies besides just being cute and adorable, or in my wife's words, edible. I don't know why she thinks babies are edible, and it creeps me out a little bit, but, um, but apparently they are when they're, when they're super cute. But we, we, put, we put these burdens and these pressures on babies. We, you know, we, we put our hopes and dreams on them, uh, and or we think about a life that, that we wish we had lived, and we kind of put that expectation on on babies as well. Uh, we want them to, to not repeat our mistakes. Uh, and so we kind of put this pressure on them to avoid the failings that we had. Uh, I've even, we had a couple of those friend of ours where they even, they had a baby uh, in the hopes that it would help save their struggling marriage. Uh, that's, that's a lot of pressure to put on a baby, uh, to, to say, oh, maybe this will be the thing that, that finally helps us click and, and get our marriage working right. Uh, we put a lot of pressure on babies. And especially in this season, we, we put a lot of pressure on one specific baby, too. You know, There's so much uh, emphasis in this season placed on this baby in a manger uh, 2,000 years ago that, that uh, you know the angels came and they said, Oh, this baby you know, brings joy on earth and goodwill towards all mankind. That's, that's a lot of pressure uh, to put on one baby. And it's a pressure that I'm not sure I always think lives up to the... Um, to the credibility, you know, is that really what happened? Did Jesus uh, being a baby in a manger, did that really bring joy and goodness for all mankind? Or was that just too much pressure to put on any one baby? And so, as we look at a story, uh, a Bible story today, we're, we're going to be talking and thinking about this. We're looking specifically at, at one specific baby named Moses. Uh, and, and this was a baby that was definitely born with a lot of pressure pressure to rescue. Uh, his parents and his people. Uh, so we're going to be in Exodus 1. You can flip there in the Bible or in your own. But as we set the stage, uh, if you were here last week, we heard about Abraham. And Abraham was one of God's children, one of his believers. And God made a promise to Abraham that, uh, that he would have great descendants and, uh, and he would be God's people. And now we're kind of picking up with some of these descendants of Abraham. But at this time now, they are uh, burdened and a racial minority in ancient Egypt. And they're living there, and it's, it's not necessarily the best situation that's where we're picking up. Uh, but just to give you a little more context for me personally, this is an important story in my own faith journey. Because growing up as a kid, I had my life kind of separated into two uh, areas. There was my real school, uh, which is what I went to five days a week. And then there was Sunday school one day a week. And at real school, we learned real history. We learned things about Columbus, sailing the ocean blue, and George Washington, we learned uh, real stories, history stories. And then in Sunday school, we learned these very odd, magical, fairy tale stories. We learned about people being thrown into fiery furnaces and not burning up, or Daniel being thrown into a lion's den and, and angels st- closing their mouths, or Jesus turning water into wine. And uh, I didn't really know how to place these things together, but just that one felt real and normal and, and what you learned in real school, and one felt just kind of supernatural and weird, and I didn't know where. Um, how they fit together, if they did at all. But then in sixth grade, my teacher started a unit on ancient Egypt. Uh, She got very into this, uh, and we did, you know, crafts and costumes and history stuff. But but to start off the unit, uh, she kind of asked everybody, she said, well, you know, we're going to be learning about ancient Egypt. Now, do you guys know they had kings in Egypt, but do you know what they called their kings in ancient Egypt? And I just kind of casually didn't think it was, we just said, oh yeah, Pharaoh. They call him Pharaoh. And and then I kind of noticed that everyone had stopped what they were doing, and they were looking at me weird. Uh, none, because apparently none of the other classmates knew that ancient that kings in ancient Egypt were called pharaoh. The teacher herself said, "Wow, you know, I can't believe you know that." And. Uh, And for me, that wasn't a big deal. I mean, after all, who hadn't seen the Ten Commandments movie and who hadn't spent one day a week in Sunday school? Um, And and so for me, it was not a big deal that I knew that ancient kings were called Pharaoh. That was just, you know, something I'd, I'd learned naturally in Sunday school. To me, the big deal was, as they're all freaking out over the word Pharaoh, I'm in my head freaking out because I'm thinking, holy smokes, Sunday school stuff is real, we're learning about it in real school. Like like these, these weird fairy tales that I just kind of thought were these magical, they actually uh, happened in a historical setting. That, that when I learned about ancient Egypt in Sunday school, it's the same ancient Egypt that I'm now learning about in real school. And, and it was a, a moment for me where it just really um, cemented that the Bible is real stories, not just something that's nice uh, that we tell our kids. And in fact, for us today, we're going to be looking at this, and there's some very real things that we need to be learning from ancient Egypt. And so we pick up with Abraham's descendants in this ancient Egypt where the kings are called pharaohs. These are the names of the sons of Israel, uh, this um, Abraham's grandson, who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. And so the sons were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. So this is the 12 boys, all their wives, and all their kids. Uh, Seventy in all, Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation ultimately died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, uh, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. And you see how this is already a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that he'd have so many descendants. Uh, But then a new king, uh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join with our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed... The more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. This is the setting for our story. It's pretty bad. Egypt had been a place where God rescued his people from the famine that was uh, th- spreading throughout the land, but now it's become a place where they're hated, they're feared, and so as a result, they're, they're cruelly oppressed. And as bad as that might sound, that's actually not as bad as it gets. Uh, the story continues on that Pharaoh decides that the Israelites are such a threat He wants to murder all of the boys that are born among the Israelites, and he passes this law. Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile and drown, but let every girl live. You know it's bad when they start killing your babies. Because when we talk about the pressure and the burden we put on babies, they represent everything we want for our future. They represent the hope and the life that could be better than the life that we have now. Which is why, yes, there was kind of a tactical reason for this, but there was also a spiritual reason for this. That that Pharaoh understood when you go after people's babies, you take away their hope for a future that's brighter. And so the people were living in a time of despair and trying to figure out how do you survive when, when the ruling uh, class in your country hates you, uh, hates you so much that they're willing uh, to, to murder your baby boys. What, what do you do? Well, you look for hope. You, you look for uh, a baby that you can maybe put hopes and dreams on that you can uh, trust or anticipate will rescue you from the bad time. And that's exactly what happened. So in the next chapter, the story continues this way. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi, and one of the sons, married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch that makes it waterproof. Uh, and then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Uh, and I think that there had to be just some, some grim determination on the part of this mother. See, the law says that any boy baby that was born, you had to throw into the Nile. And I, and I think in her mind, she, she was thinking, look, I'm obeying the law. I'm putting him in the Nile. It doesn't say I can't put him in a waterproof basket first. And she's finding a way to carve out some sort of hope for this baby and not just giving up and, and, and letting him be taken. So she does this. She puts him in the Nile. And then his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to the baby. And in that moment, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. And she saw the basket among the reeds and, and she sent her female slave to get it and she opened it and she saw a baby and he was crying and she felt sorry for him. Well, this is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, well, shall I go get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Uh, yes, go, she answered. And so the girl went and got the baby's own mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, please take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. Uh, and I, I love this. that the, the, This is how God works in miraculous ways that instead of uh, being in this position where she's having to fear for her baby's life and, and having to, to try and raise a baby under these awful uh, circumstances, now she's in a position where the, the ruling party is paying her to raise her baby in safety and security. And so uh, the woman, Yochebed is her name, uh, took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And uh, Moses is a pun. The, the word that it comes from is yesah, uh And then when you put an M at the beginning of it, it makes it a participle. And uh, so Yasa means lift up. And, uh, and so she's saying, I lifted him up out of the water. And so I named him Moses. And so that's the story of this amazing birth. And as far as special births go, this is pretty high up there. You have you know uh, oppression, cruel king, trying to kill the baby, sparing this one baby. A, a pharaoh's daughter comes along and rescues him from a river where he would ultimately certainly drown. I mean, this is Superman origin story level stuff going on. Uh, in the Bible, and, and and there's something very similar about that as well, right? That, you know this picture in Superman of these parents whose planet is doomed, uh, and so with their last act, they 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 send their baby off in a spaceship to find some place of safety, and and in the same way, you see Amram and Yocheved, the, the parents just knowing that their that their people are in a place of doom, and just in desperation, sending their son out in a basket and praying that something better comes along. And then it does, and miraculously, you know, Pharaoh's daughter comes along and and adopts this baby, and instead of him being raised in fear of his life, he's raised in privilege with access to the ruling class. Uh, and, and by the way, that's one part of the story that I've always uh, never really understood how that worked. You know, when on the one hand, you've got Pharaoh saying, I want to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. And then here comes Pharaoh's daughter saying, but I want to adopt this Hebrew baby boy. And, and how that went over at the dinner table. Like, like that's got to feel like she's undermining him. And, uh, and how did that work? I've never understood it until recently. Because uh, my wife and I have been in a, you know, struggling with future and trying to figure out what God wants for us, and my wife is adamantly convinced that God wants us to foster uh, a child uh, to adopt, and I am adamantly convinced that I do not want to foster a child to adopt. So guess what? We're adopt. We're going to foster a child to adopt. It's, and, and now that I've lived that, now I get this moment in the story, because it doesn't matter whether Pharaoh has a rule about killing the baby boys. If she wants to adopt a baby boy, then she will adopt a baby boy, and that's going to be the end of that family discussion. And yet, you see how they would have so high of hopes for this baby, right? His, the Hebrew people, God's people. When they watched this happen and, and to see how he was spared from death, and not only that, given this opportunity of privilege in a very miraculous way, that you, you can only imagine uh, how these people watched him be raised and grow up with eager eyes. And thinking, this, this is the one, this is the baby that we can put our hope in, that he's going to rescue us. He's, he's being raised with access to Pharaoh and his ear. He's going to be high up in his councils. Uh, and, and when he grows up, he's going to be a force that, that, will, that will seize or diminish the persecution and maybe even help us be a favored people again. And if you know how the story goes, what happens next is that Moses grows up. He tries to defend his people. One of the Hebrews was being beaten He accidentally kills an Egyptian soldier and then Pharaoh puts a death warrant on his head and Moses has to run away into exile and spend the rest of his life living as a shepherd in a rural farming community far away from Pharaoh and from his hurting people. Not the hopes they had for this baby who was supposed to rescue them. And as I look at this story and as I compare it to our life and look at what God's trying to show us through this, I, I, I gotta confess, I often feel like this is the place in the story where I spend most of my time in my real life. Where I'm, I'd expected God to do something big and powerful and he hasn't. And now I'm just stuck in this season of life where things are hard and there's no end in sight and this rescue that I'd hoped for wasn 't really happening and I'll just be honest with you, I, I spoke a few months ago about the Holy Spirit and the power that the Holy Spirit wants to have in our lives, but, but the reality is that most of the time i don 't pray for God to do miraculous things uh, pray for the Holy Spirit to show up, mostly because i don 't want to be disappointed when he doesn 't i, I don 't want to be Like the Israelites, who were waiting for this God, who had made this big promise to Abraham, and and yes, things are bad now, but God's going to rescue us. And then the years go by, and then Pharaoh starts killing the babies. And if there was ever a time for God to actually move in a mighty way and rescue them, that would have been the moment, right? The moment where they start killing the babies. That's that's when God should probably show up if he's going to rescue his people. And instead, it's been 80 years since that moment happened. 80 years since the genocide began. And now the person they put their hopes from in is gone. And God, who is supposed to rescue them, is absent. And that's where they're living. And that's where I think we're living especially in this Christmas season, it seems clearer to me than ever because um, my wife and I were actually talking about doing something to celebrate Christmas. And and I said, oh, we should should pop on a Christmas movie. That will be a fun thing to do with the family. And, And she said, I don't want to watch any of the Christmas movies. I said, well, how could you not want to watch a Christmas movie? I said, because they're all sad. Like they're all really melancholic and, and not fun. I said, what, what, what do you mean? And when we kind of walked through and we looked at all of our movies and It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, yeah, Jimmy Stewart's miserable and hates his life for that whole movie. Or White Christmas, it's all about you know, former days of glory and a sad general who's not living the life he used to live. Even Elf is about uh, someone who is abandoned by his father when he tries to find him again. His father doesn't want him. Christmas movies are dark. Christmas songs aren't much better either. <laughs> Like when you think, you know, have yourself a merry little Christmas, you know, if the fates allow, you know, somehow we're going to muddle through somehow. I mean, like the, the lines are, are off, or I'll, I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams. Or saying, baby, please come home. Like, like Christmas for some reason seems to emphasize and highlight this gap that we have in our lives between the the bright joy and hopes that that we think our lives should have and the more miserable reality that our life isn't everything we would want it to be. I don't know what it might be for you. I mean, if you're single, it could be that you, you know, you've been wanting a spouse for so long, wanting God to rescue you from a life of singleness, and it just doesn't happen. Or maybe it's the other way, where you're married and you would wish God would give you a life of singleness. It can go both ways. Maybe it's financial struggles, and you've just been waiting for God to push something through, and it doesn't happen. And so how many of us then in this season, we actually stop asking? We stop praying. We stop expecting God to do something big in our lives because, frankly, it is too despairing to even face what we would have rather we had, and we don't want to blame God, and we don't want to uh, you know, lose our faith, and so we just kind of shuffle along, strive the best we can, and, and give up hope that there was ever supposed to be anything better than this. I think that's where the Israelites were. I mean, it's been 400 years since God made a promise. How many grandfathers were still telling that story to their grandkids? Or if they tried, you know, they'd say, oh, you know, and God said that he was going to make us a mighty nation. And his grandkids looked around and said, what are you talking about? We're slaves. They beat us. They whip us. They kill us. But but God says we're going to be a mighty nation. Okay, grandpa. I mean, just even in our own country, it's been 250 years since the founding of, of this country and, and constitutions and declarations of independence, and, and we're already arguing about what they really meant. You know, the founding fathers mean this or they mean that. Just 250 years later, and, and we're losing the story. We're at least disagreeing about it. At what point do these people, after 400 years, say maybe Abraham was a kook? The thought God made a promise to him, but it's been 400 years. I, I don't know that he's showing up. And so they were living in this place where, the, where life was, was hard and they needed a rescue and there was nothing in sight. And I think most of us, yeah, we technically live in the most prosperous country in the most prosperous time, and yet how many of us are living where we've given up hope that there should be anything better than what we're able to scrabble out for ourselves, what we're able to accomplish in our own family's life, just in this country and through our own hard work and labor. How do we square the difference between what we think life should be and what it is without giving up hope that God actually has something bigger for us? As I think about that, I was looking at the story of Admiral James Stockdale. He was a prisoner uh, during the Vietnam War uh, in a North Vietnamese uh, POW torture camp for seven years. Uh, And... For seven years, he took command of those prisoners and and helped guide many of them through to survival. They lost a lot of men, but but he was able to lead a contingent and and survive for seven years uh, in a brutal camp and brutal conditions. And people asked him, what does it take to get through such a harsh environment uh, when rescue is not coming anytime quickly? Does it take being optimistic? And Admiral uh, Stockdale said, actually, no, the optimists... Were the first ones to die. See, because the optimists, they kept saying, oh, we're, we're going to be rescued by Christmas. And then Christmas came and Christmas went and we weren't rescued. And then they'd say, okay, well, maybe by Easter, maybe by Easter we'll be rescued. And then Easter came and went and they still weren't rescued. And ultimately they died brokenhearted. But the pessimists, they didn't make it either. Because the pessimists, they, they, were, they just looked at all of, of the squalor and the pain and the beatings and there was nothing to hope for. And so they just gave up and they just, they just died through lack of trying. And so what Admiral Stockdale said is that you actually have to have two things if you're going to survive uh, in conditions where you're waiting for a rescue that never seems to come. And uh, it's been called the Stockdale Paradox. Which is this, that you have to retain faith. You have to believe Uh, And something bigger, that you will prevail in the end regardless of the difficulties. You have to believe that someone is coming to rescue you. But at the exact same time, you must also confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. See, if the optimists, if they don't confront the brutal realities, then it pops their their bubble, their fantasy land, and, and then in sheer brokenheartedness, they can't cling to faith anymore. And the pessimists, they see this really well, but there's nothing bigger that they believe in that gives them any hope that it's worth persevering and struggling, and so it makes more sense to just give up and die. But if you can do both, then you can wait patiently with hope for a rescue that might be coming someday. It's interesting to me to reflect on this. I've been in a lot of counseling over the last uh, decade, you know, privately and, and joint. And, and one of the things that's been consistent among all the different counselors that we've talked with uh, is, is something that I've actually struggled with. Which is when there's a problem in my life um, that, that's hindering me or holding me back, or when there's a problem in my marriage uh, that they pointed out that I move instantly into fixing it or minimizing it or coping with it. You know, So I share, you know, oh, this bad thing happened to me, but you know what? What do you do? You adapt, you live, you move on, you learn from it. Or, uh, or if my wife has an issue with something in our marriage and she shares it and I say, okay, well then I'll work on that and I'll change that and we'll do this thing differently. And, and what the counselors have been saying to me is, you're skipping a step. Before you start fixing it, before you start learning from it, before you do any of these other things, you need to just stop and say, hey, that thing stinks, hey, that, that thing that happened to you, that wasn't good. That, that wasn't fair. That wasn't right. That was an injustice. And just stop there. Or my wife has a, has a, a concern or a problem, and before I try to fix it, just say, oh, man, that, that's really hard. I'd hate, I'd hate to feel that way. That's got to be really, really hard for you to be in, in this marriage feeling that way. And I don't like that at all, frankly. It seems like a waste of time. <laughs> Like, okay, we get it. Of course it's hard. That's why we're in counseling. We wouldn't be here. Like, why do I have to now say it? Uh, what can we, why don't we just move on to the fixing it? And like, or my life. I don't want to dwell on my life. I don't want to, like, think about, you know, woe is me and throw a pity party about hard things. They happened. I move on. And, and yet what the counselors are telling me is, is healing does not happen unless I stop and just say that it was a cruddy thing that happened. And so it's been interesting as I've gone through that for the last few years and even the last few months, and then, and then to come across the Stockdale Paradox this week, and to see that that's exactly what this war hero learned himself, that it's not enough to move on to the good thing. It's not enough to learn from it, uh, change it, fix it, have faith in something else. You've got to be willing to do this first and at the same time. But if you can do them both, if you can do both things, if you can, if you can not just uh, ignore or dismiss or bury the hard thing uh, and, and not just hope naively that maybe something is happening, but if you can do both things, then you actually have the perseverance and the will to get through whatever life throws at you and to actually live long enough to see the rescue when it ultimately comes, as it ultimately did come for them. Seven years later, but it did come for those who were able to make it that far. And if we can learn from Stockdale, if we can learn from uh, the Israelites, then, then we might be able to be in that kind of position as well, that we can wait and persevere and not lose hope, not get embittered bit uh, or cynical, but even in a season like Christmas to look ahead to joy and trust that rescue is on the way. Because here's the thing, even though they had to wait 430 years, God was not absent in their lives. And this is what he ultimately then said to Moses. Moses who tried to rescue them and failed. Moses who gave up and was hiding out as a shepherd uh, in a rural community. God found him again and the Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned about their suffering just like he is for you. Whatever that thing is that you want to be rescued from, he's not far, he's not distant. He has heard it, he is concerned, he shares in your suffering. And then ultimately he says to Moses, and so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I was talking about this passage with Steve Howard this week, and he shared a quote I hadn't heard before, but it it hit me, that, that God is rarely early, but he's never late either. He's always right on time, working his ineffable plan in our life. And it's not the time that we would have predicted or hoped for or or picked for ourselves, but it's the time where God was doing something powerful and mighty if we can only learn to trust him and see what he maybe sees. You see, when we look at this story, it's not just a story about God being late and leaving his people uh, in despair. God was doing some really important things. And the big one was he was showing us, even now, who 4,000 years later are reading this story, he was giving us ID markers, clues as to what it looks like when God rescues his people. See, if we look at the story, here are a few just details uh, that the rescuer comes after a 400-year gap from the last promise. From the time that God promised Abraham to the time when God sent Moses to rescue his people was 430 years. And that during that time there would be persecution and hardship. And that the rescuer's birth itself would be plotted against by a cruel king who would kill baby boys for the sake of trying to prevent the rescuer from being born. And that the rescuer was given a name that means save. And this is the amazing thing. You remember that part of the story where where the Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, uh, gave him the name Moses because it means lift up. And for her, it was a silly pun. For the Hebrews, there was something far more profound and powerful. You see, that word yesah in Hebrew, it doesn't just mean lift up, it means to save. Because the picture is if someone's drowning, you lift them up out of the water to save them. If someone's in a rough condition and poverty or a hard circumstance, you lift them up out of their condition to save them. Yassah doesn't only mean to lift up, it means to save. And so this silly joke that the Egyptian princess made was a sign to God's people that he was going to save them and that ultimately this rescuer would come back from seeming failure and would free God's people from slavery. This is what it looks like when God rescues his people And now that we know this, does this start to look like another story that's pretty important this time of year? So you may not know this, but the last prophet of the Old Testament, the final person to speak God's promise was a prophet named Malachi. And Malachi said that God was going to send a savior and he was going to be born in the town of Bethlehem. And then the people waited 400 years. 400 years of oppression, slavery by Rome, 400 years of God no longer seeming to speak to his people, ignoring their hardships, 400 years before a baby boy was born in Bethlehem. And then when he was born, what happened was that a cruel king by the name of Herod, uh, who was so desperate to protect himself from someone that might take his throne, that he killed all the baby boys in that town trying to keep the rescuer from being born and taking his place and then that rescuer the name the name Jesus comes from the same word as Moses Yasha but whereas Moses the M on the front makes it mean saving one Jesus the the Y on the front in Hebrew makes it mean God saves because at this point it wasn't just going to be a human being trying to save God's people it was going to be God himself coming down to save his people and then to look ahead for a little bit then that this this special birth, this chosen one who was born after 400 years of prophecy, who was attempted to be killed by a cruel king uh, whose name meant save. He died on a cross and his people gave up and thought that this was the end of God's rescue for them. But then that brings us to our Christmas text for this morning. It's from the book of Hebrews. uh, the writer says that, that Jesus shared in our humanity by being born in a manger. He became one of us so that by his death, his death wasn't failure, his death wasn't the end. He might actually break the power of him who holds the power of death that is, the devil. And that Jesus would free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. See, Jesus, that death that looked like failure was actually the way that God conquered the slavery that binds us now. And this is where we can connect with this story because none of us, hopefully, have ever been in a position where we are actually slaves to another person. And yet, we do all or have all lived in fear, in slavery to this fear of death because death taints everything. Death's the thing that I think makes Christmas so melancholy and bittersweet Because it's always looming and no matter what joy or bright spot you might carve out, it's always waiting for everyone. And not only that, death is the thing that makes so much of life hard, makes our relationships not go the way they want uh, because they're all slightly corrupted and broken down by the reality of death. But if we know these markers and we recognize that in the same way God used Moses to set his people free from slavery in Egypt, God then used Jesus in the same way to set all people free from the slavery of death. And it's not only death that he saves us from. It's all of the hopelessness and despair in this life that death used to bring. See, now death doesn't have to have power over us because we've been set free. And now the gap between the life as it is that we experience and the life as it should be isn't insurmountable. And Christmas can be a time of hope and joy in spite of the hard things that we need to be rescued from. In fact, my wife just shared with me this week a quote from Timothy Keller. He's a pastor out in New York. Uh, And he says this in, in response to the the shallowness of a pop cultural Christmas that's so fuzzy and sentimental and, and festive. Timothy Keller says this is actually what's going on in Christmas. He says this Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It does not say, cheer up! If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance. But it supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. And now, listen to this next line in light of the Stockdale paradox that we just heard Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say we can fix things if we try hard enough, nor does it agree with the pessimists who see only a dystopian future. The message of Christianity, the message of Christmas, is instead. Things really are this bad. And we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. The Christmas message is that on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It has come from outside the world. There is a light outside of this world, and Jesus has brought that light to save us. Indeed, he is the light. That baby came through. We put the pressure of an entire world dying, a human race that had no hope, on one baby's shoulders, and he brought light into the world. And I can't tell you now that that rescue that Jesus brings is going to be obvious or it's going to be timely. Maybe that thing you want to be rescued from, he's bringing rescue to you and it's waiting just around the corner tomorrow or this year. Or maybe we're going to be in the position of the Israelites in Egypt waiting 80 years and not seeing the rescue that we'd hoped for and the time that we'd hope for. But what I can promise you is this. That because death has been conquered, it is not the end for any of us. And when we are on the other side of death, looking with our Lord back in hindsight on our lives, we will see a God who is striving to rescue us the entire time. Who is working in and behind the scenes and who is doing powerful things, not just to save us, but to save so many people around us as well. And I pray that you can, like Stockdale, like the Israelites, like what I'm trying to do this season, you can face the hard things that you want to be rescued from. That they can make the faith that you cling to even more hopeful. And that you can look forward in confidence to the rescue that is coming for you in this life, especially in the next. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, I thank you that you are a God who saves. You don't just tell us to try harder to to earn our way or work our way out of slavery or out of the hard things that face us in this life, but that you came alongside us with a rescuer who is stronger and more powerful than us. And Lord, I pray that you would give every man, woman, every child in this place the confidence that comes from our faith that is in you. Because even though you're not on our timetable, you are the only thing that we can ultimately trust in because you are the only one who has ever conquered death. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.